Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted this week to welcome a special guest, Charlie Sykes, who is host, uh, as you probably know already, of the Bulwark's flagship podcast, which is Going Gangbusters, and which, if you're not already a daily listener, you should be. You are missing out. So thank you one and all for being here. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. All right. Well, this is the day that uh, Joe Biden is uh, traveling to Kenosha, and I just cannot resist repeating what Anna Kelly, who is a spokeswoman for the Trump campaign, had to say. She, she's bearing in mind that Trump was just there the other day, right, in Kenosha. She said about Biden's visit that he is trying to use a hurting community as a political prop for his failing campaign. <laughs> So, all right. Well, um, so we have, uh, we, we haven't gotten all the details yet about what Biden is doing in, uh, in, in Kenosha. We do know that he met with Jacob Blake's family. There was a lot of talk in the last few days, um, from many, many people who mean well, who mean, uh, Biden well, that, uh, he needed to do some very dramatic steps to prove his bona fides on that he was against rioting, looting, and so forth. And um, so, Charlie, I'm going to start with you. I'd like to get your reaction now that the the dust has settled a little bit on this and and Biden did give a what most people consider to be an excellent statement. Um, is the burden still on Biden uh, to to be the one to show that uh, that he is intolerant of rioting and looting? Well, first of all, it's great to be on your podcast. I appreciate it very much. I have to say, I was really impressed with uh, the way Biden handled it. Uh, he really did find kind of the sweet spot. It was thoughtful. It was nuanced. Um, and I think that he, he ended up in a place where the vast majority of voters are, that they can hold these ideas in their head at the same time, that you can that you can support peaceful protests, but you can uh, you re- reject the, the rioting. Uh, the, the big question, I think, is whether he can continue to amplify that message, uh, whether he he can you know continue to to push this theme that that it is Donald Trump who is the threat to public safety to flip this script around, which is not the cliche um, on Trump, you know, asking him, you know, are, you know, do you feel safer? Under Donald Trump, but you also asked the question of whether the burden is still on him. And I, I wrote about this earlier the week. This the asymmetry of our expectations. It's it is really remarkable that no one is pressing Donald Trump to do the decent thing because everybody knows it's not going to happen. Donald Trump is not going to uh, you know reject the vigilanteism. He is not going to uh, make it clear that uh, police shooting innocent black men is is, is a problem. Uh, because he's he is Donald Trump, so we expect Joe Biden to be a decent man. So there's pressure, you know, show us your decency. But with Donald Trump, I think it's kind of like it's baked in. He's going to be Donald Trump. It is interesting how few Republican voices have been out there. You would think that at least some Republicans might want to say, "Hey, it would be great if you could, in fact, address these these kinds of issues." But we're not even hearing that. 
Yeah, um, Damon, I I have the sense that the script has been flipped. I wonder if you agree with me. Um, a few days ago, I was definitely in the camp of saying, yes, Biden needs to prove that uh, that he's against rioting because this could hurt Democrats. They'll be perceived as weak on on law and order, and and that could be a problem. Um, but uh, but you know, in light of what's happened since with Trump actively encouraging vigilantism, defending Kyle Rittenhouse, and uh, and suggesting that the people who rode into Kenosha with paintball guns and bear spray and so on were merely being defensive. Um, I, I I feel that the, the, the script has changed. What do you think? Well, I think Biden did himself uh, a good uh, bit of good with his speech this week uh, on the subject. So I think that was that was welcome. Uh, This is going to continue most likely. And so he's going to have to make similar statements along the way as kind of the natural unfolding of the campaign. I think it'll certainly be talked about in the debates. Uh, that's, that's for certain. Uh, I, I wouldn't say exactly that. I think it's been, the script has been flipped. I think because Biden gave a good statement on top of a number of other shorter statements over the past week or so, and then some going all the way back to the beginning of June, um, there's now enough of a track record that I, I think he clearly has made, you know, made abundantly obvious to everyone watching in case they actually doubted it, that no, Joe Biden doesn't cheer on rioting and looting and violence and so forth. Um, but I do think that that he will have to continue to address it and in a way that isn't just about political strategizing. I do think politics has something to do with it. The, the post-Republican uh, convention polls are not showing much of a bounce for Trump, either nationally or in the battleground states. So we are pretty much where we were before the conventions right now. So Biden remains very much in the lead, but the battleground states are much closer than the the national numbers. And there is a vulnerability there on this subject if Trump can effectively pin it on Biden. So he's Biden is going to have to keep pushing that away and keeping it from working. But there's also a moral side to it, too. We, you know, those of us who have been denouncing Trump since he became president and even before have all kinds of things rightly to say about him poisoning the country's civic culture and our public life. Uh, and our politics more generally. But we also don't want uh, a country where the far left uh, does, you know, wreaks the kind of mayhem that it has over the past few months. And, you know, just this week, the, the, the poor hapless mayor of Portland, uh, you know, things escalated there where uh, the, the protesters came to his apartment building and tried to burn it down. I mean, this is this is not normal, and this is not something that should be happening. And the, you know, the sad fact for the Democrats is because of the way the political spectrum works. Like these are sort of their problem. Trump has his problem, and he he all he wants to do is hug them and bring them closer to him, like the vigilantes, like uh, QAnon. Uh, but you know, we do expect Biden to say something else because it is part of his electoral coalition. And we hope for better from the Democrats to make clear that no, we don't think that this makes the country a better place to have this kind of thing going on. Um, 
Bill, I, there's not moral equivalence between the two sides, I would suggest. I mean, it, there would be if you had um, Biden defending Antifa and defending looting and, uh, and so forth as, as self-defense. That would be the equivalent of what Trump is doing. Um, but instead, what you have is, is Democrats sometimes being a little too reluctant to call it out and a little too reluctant to deal with it firmly. So, you know, I, I would be curious to hear your analysis of things like the governor of, uh, of Oregon, Kate Brown, who I looked her up, boy, she sounds unbelievably woke and reluctant to take on the violent, uh, extremists who've been setting fires and committing all kinds of other mayhem in Portland? Uh, A few points in response to that, Mona. Uh, First of all, I agree with you uh, that there hasn't been moral equivalence in the stance of the two candidates. Uh, But as Charlie pointed out just a few minutes ago, there's an asymmetry of expectations. <laughs> and, and so I think Biden, Biden did what he had to do. He did it well. And he is putting his money where his mouth is, literally, of the tidal wave of money that came in in the month of August, more than $350 million. He has taken out $45 million of ads in the swing states made up almost entirely of clips from the speech that he gave distinguishing between peaceful protest on the one hand and looting and violence on the other. So this is not a one-off for Biden. Uh, And uh, he is playing after a pause of 96 hours, which was too long, very aggressive defense on this issue and could indeed be on the verge of going on offense. Uh, That's point one. Point two, the governors of the three most affected states have been missing in action. Uh, Governor Evers in Wisconsin has done a little better uh, than the governors of Oregon and Washington, but he's been an example of too little too late. Uh, You know, the, the the governor of Oregon has been an example of doing nothing uh, aggressively. And the governor of Washington has been an example of doing nothing passively. Uh, not, Not a distinguished record. Point three, despite all of this, the surveys that have come out in the past 24 hours, you know, from CNN and also the political morning consult poll, have given Biden a clear and substantial edge on issues such as keeping America safe from harm, handling the criminal justice system, and handling race relations. So, uh, you know, I I don't think that Biden is operating from a position of weakness here. Um, Linda, yeah, Bill's Bill's certainly right, um, I think, about where we stand right at this moment. But then again, um, the the tides in in the affairs of men can, uh, can change. And doesn't it strike you that if the violence continues uh, and, you know, the people in, in Portland and other places are 
you know, the kinds of people who, who after dark, you know, set fires and, and destroy things, um, they're not exactly, you know, on team Biden and worried about what the effect of this will be on the, on the presidential race. Uh, they're not very rational actors. Um, so isn't it a danger, don't you think that, um, that if the violence is not brought under control, that, you know, after a while, Biden continuing to denounce it makes him look ineffectual. And that could be a problem going forward. Well, first of all, I think Bill is exactly right in pointing the finger where it uh, belongs. And that is at governors and also at local Democratic officials. Because I think um, the fact is they are the ones who have the ability to get in there and to bring this under control, and they're not doing it. And if I were uh, high up in the Biden campaign, I would be getting him on the telephone with the governors of those states um, and trying to get them to realize that he uh, he wants them to act more forcefully to bring order to their states. Because I do think, Mona, that this is not going to go away. I don't think Biden can give a speech, no matter how good it is, cut it up into clips and run those clips on television and win the issue. I think that it's uh, an issue that's going to be with us. And as long as there are fires burning on major American cities, as long as people are being, um, their businesses are being destroyed, people are dying, uh, we're going to have this problem with us. And I hearken back to 1992 um, and the Clinton uh, uh presidential bid. I happened to have been at the time uh, visiting my mother in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and my mother always had the television set on. And she had the TV on and an ad came on and it was a rippling American flag. And it was someone talking about um, welfare and making sure that um, we got welfare under control and that we didn't, you know, people didn't essentially go on the dole and not contribute. And I thought it was a Bush campaign ad, the George Herbert Walker Bush ad. But lo and behold, at the end of the ad, it came on Bill Clinton for president. It was at that moment that I realized Bill Clinton was a real threat. And ultimately, he did go on to win. And he won because he concentrated on swing states with a message that appealed to them. So I don't live in the swing states uh, that Joe Biden is running his ads on. I think it's great to have him out there with that speech, but I think they need to do more. And the thing they need most to do is to talk to their own troops, talk to the uh, elected leaders in those various states and try to get them to understand that this um, is not helpful to allow mayhem to continue in the streets. And frankly, the National Guard uh, may be much more effective at controlling this when it gets really out of hand uh, than local police forces uh, are. I think that the results might be uh, less likely to be as volatile and to see the kind of uh, mayhem, unfortunately, we've seen in the past um, if if it's actually um, the National Guard doing some of the patrolling and and not local police. Charlie, uh, we've been we've been down this road so many times that I almost hesitate to ask this question, but I can't I can't help myself. Um, do you suppose there's any chance at all that people who are 
um, waffling about voting for Trump. Watch him give interviews to people like Laura Ingram and describe planes almost completely loaded with black clad thugs coming to disrupt the uh, Republican National Convention, um, to saying he's going to pull money from anarchist cities, um, telling people to vote twice in North Carolina, that they may possibly get an unsettling sense that the man is not in full control. Well, you would certainly hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> and so de- define what you mean is by, by wobbly, because I, I'm trying to imagine somebody who would not be made wobbly by watching that. Uh, and I do wonder, you know, we, we've had some speculation about the shy Trump voter. Right. And I think you and I spoke about this the other day. And in at least in Wisconsin, Trump voters are not shy. They're, they're in <laughs> your face. There are flags, there's boat parades, there's all of these things. But I wonder about the number of folks who live in you know, counties like where I am right now who are watching this and having exactly that reaction going, you know what? Uh, I took a chance on this guy, but I cannot take four more years of all of this and will be immensely relieved if uh, they don't have to, you know, have him in the White House for the next four years. Because what's interesting is we've had this conversation over and over and over again, um, waiting for some sort of an indication that that it's going to hurt him and it never seems to move the needle. But maybe we've been asking the wrong question because none of this stuff is going to make any difference with the hardcore Republican base. That's not going to budge any of them. But that's not his problem right now. In a state like Wisconsin, that hardcore base is just not large enough to win in the state. He's going to have to have some of those swing votes. And in Wisconsin, we have a large number of people who do move back and forth, who voted for Trump, but also voted for uh, for Obama twice, uh, who voted for uh, very liberal Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin, uh, but then might have voted for Scott Walker at one time in the past. And I do think that this is going to take a toll with many of those uh, with many of those voters. They, they may not be vocal about it, but I think there's a possibility of the shy slash exhausted Biden voter, uh, the voter who looks at this and goes, you know what? Another conservative judge is just not worth this. But I do want to uh, underline some of the comments made before about the importance of Democrats at least establishing some credibility. The only way that Donald Trump gets real traction on this issue is if the voters decide that he is the only one who is solidly standing up against the rioters, that he's the only one that they can count on, because otherwise they're going to get somebody like feckless, like the governors of, of Washington or Oregon or the mayor of Portland, who have been shockingly ineffective um, and really have become poster children for what Donald Trump is trying to say represents the party. But I will say this is this is where you have the problem for Donald Trump. Uh, people may be turned off by Black Lives Matter. They may be turned off by Antifa, right? But Antifa is not on the ballot. Um, Joe Biden's on the ballot. And I, I, I talked about, uh, on my podcast, I talked about a piece of literature that they're circulating in the suburbs of Milwaukee and apparently everywhere else as well. And it's a picture of... Elon Omar, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and Joe Biden. And, you know, it's like Muslim woman, Jew, um, Hispanic woman. But the problem is Joe Biden's the guy on the ballot. Um, He beat them in the primary. And so the success of the Trump campaign really depends on people confusing Donald Trump with with what they think of as the worst, most extreme elements of the left. And I think that's a heavy no, confusing lift. Biden. You mean I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. confusing, confusing Biden. And I and I think that's a heavy lift for uh, tr- Trump world, because 
Joe, all Joe Biden has to do is kind of shrug his shoulders and say, do I look like some dangerous Which radical? Which is exactly what he did. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. one of his better moments, kind of like yeah. Ronald Reagan. There you go again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let us uh, let us turn now to a discussion that we have not um, uh, paid that much attention to in the last few podcasts, um, but that is the continuing um, crisis of coronavirus. Uh, I want to turn to you, Bill Galston. Um, the U.S. Um, has four percent of the world's population, but twenty-five percent of the COVID nineteen cases. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting because, because voters do not, while they're not happy about the, uh, response to the virus and they're certainly not happy about the economy and so forth, they, there's a a significant number of voters are giving, uh, Trump a pass. They're saying, well, it's not his fault. It came from China. He did the best he could. Um, what, what what do you have to say about the comparison between the U.S. response and that of other countries like us, countries you know comparable? <laughs> that raises some very interesting questions about who's comparable to us, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. I mean, first, just a just a, a political point. Uh, there's a reason that Trump is trying to divert attention from the coronavirus to alleged chaos in the cities. If this election is a referendum on his hand, handling of the coronavirus, he's going to lose and it won't be close. So let's just, you know, let's just be clear about that. Uh, and his ratings on the, his handling of the coronavirus are worse than his overall job approval ratings and below uh, the share of the population that seems destined to vote for him. So this is not an area of great strength for him. Now, from politics to facts, how are we doing? Well, uh, I suppose it it could be worse. We could be Belgium, uh, but uh, basically we're we're on a par with countries like Brazil and Mexico and Italy and Spain and Chile and the UK. Uh, but if you but if you want to you know want a point of comparison, uh, the the rate of deaths per million in Canada, our neighbor to the north, uh, another advanced society, is less than half of ours. Let me repeat that: less than half. Uh, the death rate per million in Germany is less than one-fifth of ours. Uh, The same is true for Denmark and Austria. Uh, I could go on and on. There are countries no wealthier than the United States, no more democratic than the United States, uh, with, with institutions that on paper are no better than ours, uh, that have done a much, much better job of handling the coronavirus. Many of them initially had spikes worse than ours, but the countries that I've just listed have not had second waves that were even worse than the first wave. That is our distinctive contribution to the coronavirus picture. Let me just make one other point. 
Uh, the White House has brought on a new science advisor, if that's the right characterization for him, a Dr. Scott Atlas uh, from the Hoover Institution, among other places, uh, who has embraced the theory of herd immunity, uh, essentially the Swedish theory, protect the most vulnerable and otherwise get out of the virus's way and let the rest of the population get infected because then you'll be through it. Uh, well, I've done an ongoing study of the performance of Sweden versus its Scandinavian neighbor, Norway, uh, on this dimension. As of this morning, the Swedish death rate was 11 times that of Norway's death rate. And that's what Dr. Atlas wants to use as a model for the United States with the full-throated encouragement of the president of the United States. This is madness. Um, Damon, it looks like the president sort of shopped around for a advisor who would tell him what he wanted to hear on this subject. He is sidelining Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and bringing in Scott Atlas, as uh, as Bill mentioned. Um, but, you know, it, even to, so, so Bill's de definitely right about the, um, about Sweden's terrible numbers, but, you know, it isn't even the case that Sweden followed a complete herd immunity strategy. I mean, they don't allow, um, they're, they don't allow a lot of things. They, they don't allow gatherings of more than 50 people and their, their theaters are closed and so on and so forth. Um, but, um, but the, uh, the, there were other aspects of our response um, that go beyond just picking the wrong strategy. Don't you think? I mean, we didn't pick any strategy. Part of what went so wrong in America was that we had leadership that, first of all, engaged in massive denial. Right. I mean, I, I think there are ways in which you could look at um, the American tradition of federalism and see how in in the best of all worlds, it that could have really helped us to respond to the virus, uh, especially well, if you had competent governments, both at the federal level and at state level, and that they could coordinate together especially with the feds providing expertise and resources so that the states could do what they needed to. Because when what we ended up doing is at the very beginning, when a few states like uh, Washington State, California, and then especially New York State were getting very severe spikes long before we had adequate testing set up, which was itself an early failure since the, the federal government could have seen this coming as early as January, but we didn't have that set up. But then most of the rest of the country, and then with, for a brief time, the president's endorsement, most of the country kind of shut down, went into lockdown. The, the economy took a massive hit. And many of these things happened in places where there were almost no cases yet. And so then places started to open up probably sooner than they should have in places where the virus was beginning to spread. And so you ended up with the second round of, of cases, uh, in, in, especially through the Southwest and the North Southeast, uh, and back in California again, uh, all where, where it's gone way down in the East where, where it, they had it the worst at the beginning. So, 
what you ended up with instead of a kind of case study in federalism where maybe only the worst hit states went completely on lockdown with lots of support and then were helped with contact tracing and testing when they came out of it, while other states were testing and only would go into lockdown when there was an outbreak. Instead, you had a kind of anti-federalist response of the whole country going in lockdown. And then federalism came in at the worst possible time where people opened up when they shouldn't have. And now we're in this situation going into the fall where we don't know what's going to happen. We're still getting about 40,000 cases a day. Uh, just today at my favorite Corona uh, site, world, uh, worldometers.info, uh, uh, it says that we have passed 190,000 deaths as of today, which means that we will pass 200,000 long before the end of September. And we're sort of flying blind because the president actively wants to test less. We are testing less. Uh, Colleges, a lot of them are open where where there are outbreaks happening now. In Philadelphia, there's an outbreak at Temple University. Uh, that's where I am. Uh, and, and then of course, you know, this is a whole other topic. I'll shut up in a second, but the whole issue of public schools opening, we've prioritized in many cases, opening of bars and restaurants and even movie theaters. And on the other hand, there are large swaths of the country where public schools are not going to be open, which of course is terrible for children and terrible for their parents. So it's, it's a really kind of a full spectrum failure. Uh, There's really nowhere you can look uh, for a positive message, except maybe that after the colossal blunder of Andrew Cuomo and the nursing homes, once that was finally realized, New York has done a very good job kind of after the, uh, you know, Mount Everest of cases and deaths that they had, they really did turn it around. And and at the moment, New York State has a very, very low uh, rates. Uh, of new cases and deaths. So they at least showed how to shut it down once you have the problem, even though they they responded uh, very ineffectively at the beginning. Yes. Uh, Linda, um, I, one, of the, one of the problems with our approach is that we politicized this, this whole question of how to handle the virus, uh, liberate, you know, Michigan, liberate... Uh, uh, Wisconsin and so forth. Um, I, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, uh, I go to a, a makeshift sort of play group for our dogs, a, a doggy play group every morning uh, at a neighborhood park. And one of the gals that I meet with had spent some time, she's originally from South Carolina. She was visiting her mom and uh, ch- began to chat with a lady she met on the beach. And uh, this gal said, well, you know, you're, you're from here. And she said, well, I used to be, but now I live up in Virginia. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and my friend said, what? And she, we love Virginia. And she said, no, y'all have to wear those masks everywhere. And, uh, and then she tried to extract a, uh, a, a solemn pledge from my friend that she was going to vote for Mr. Trump. Um, but, uh, but in any, again, in, in any case, that is a unique screw up on the part of America, right? I mean, lots of countries made mistakes and we made many mistakes that had nothing to do with Trump. For example, the CDC screwing up the, 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 uh, original test, the FDA not granting approval for other tests. I mean, there were lots of screw ups that had nothing to do with Trump, but this one 
politicizing the response and making it a political display to wear a mask or not um, was a uniquely American screw up, don't you think? Absolutely. And as I've described, I think at other times on this show, going uh, into rural Virginia, um, where I have a a farmhouse that I sometimes retreat to. Um, people don't wear masks there, by and large. Um, I've had very unpleasant encounters uh, as a result of that. Uh, among some of my friends in Colorado, there was uh, real resistance to the notion of wearing a mask. And it the, the mask, to wear a mask or not wear a mask, has been a kind of public um, reaffirmation of what your political views are with many conservatives feeling that if they put a mask on their face, then they were embracing uh, AOC and uh, not just, you know, Biden, but the very left wing of, of the Democratic Party. And, and that has come from the top. That has come from the fact that Donald Trump refuses to wear a mask and his family. I mean, you know, you didn't see Ivanka or others wearing uh, masks during the Republican convention. Well, you practically had, nobody, nobody out did lawn. out on yeah. the lawn. There were, there were literally thousands of people there, bare face, many of them older, many of them uh, overweight, having, you know, those preexisting conditions that make it uh, much more lethal. But there's also, um, you know, in talking about the politicization, Right now, he's trying to have it both ways, Trump is. He's, on the one hand, acting as if it's nothing and people don't need to worry. On the other hand, he's pushing very hard to get uh, early release of a vaccine. And and I would just, you know, point to an article Rick Perlstein wrote uh, earlier, I think it was in the New York Times, about the fly, uh, swine flu debacle during the Gerald Ford administration, where they rushed through a vaccine, uh, turned out that the flu in that instance did not emerge to be the kind of pandemic they feared, but the vaccine itself ended up paralyzing literally hundreds of people because of, of the actual vaccine. So he's trying to have it both ways, and and I think he's going to kill a lot of Americans with his uh, refusal to model good behavior by constantly wearing a mask and talking about that, but also that he might push through quack uh, medicine as he has done all along with, you know, hydroxychloroquine, uh, most recently the the plasma uh, intervention, and now intervening in the vaccine approval uh, process to the way that in a way that could be very detrimental to Americans' health and will make them very suspicious of taking vaccines if it turns out that it is rushed through and that there are any problems with it. Right. And it isn't as if, you know, we don't have a pre-existing condition in this country called suspicion of vaccines, right? right? Also right. partially promoted by Donald Trump, among Absolutely. others. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and many others. Um, uh, so so um, there's, there's one other aspect of this that I, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, Charlie, um, one of the real dangers, in addition to rushing a vaccine, but one of the dangers of of pushing for a herd immunity strategy, which, okay, to be fair to Mr. or Dr. Atlas, you know, the idea that that he's promoting is that you protect the most vulnerable members of society, those with pre-existing conditions, the elderly, et cetera, and you let the young and healthy get the disease because for them, it's mostly a very mild event. 
Except we don't know that for sure. I mean, one of the things that we've been finding out in recent months as the world is dealing with this new virus is that there was, a, for example, a study from Germany um, that showed that even months after recovering from the virus, you know, young, healthy males, average age, uh, well, not that young, but average age 49, um, were showed something like 75% of them had significant heart damage, even though they had had mild cases of the, of the disease. Um, and so, you know, there, there are lots of other examples in medicine of viruses causing other problems, like, you know, HIV leads to certain cancers and, um, and, and the human papillomavirus causes cervical cancer. So, you know, to sort of blithely say, well, you know, most people just get the sniffles and let's let them get sick. Um, it seems pretty uh, irresponsible. It's grossly irresponsible. You know, all of this is so worrying, by which I, I mean terrifying, uh, to, to think about the the consequences, you know, in the short term, the number of people who will get sick or might die from this. But also going to, to Linda's point, what happens if you have the president of the United States who, for political reasons, uh, prematurely forces through a vaccine. Uh, we we already have a terrible va- you know anti-vaxxer problem in this country, but you will have uh, rational anti-vaxxers people who right. are going. I, I, it, it's a completely rational decision if you have not done the science, if you haven't gone through all the trials, if this is something that uh, Trump and his you know his uh, his group of misfit toys have put together, then people will reasonably resist using it, and if they do, it becomes ineffectual. And there's this longer term problem of 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 the politicization of science. Uh, there is so much skepticism of science. And I think, by the way, there's there's a role for skepticism in science. Don't, right, don't get me wrong. Uh, we, we ought not to, uh, you know, because that's the scientific method, right? You test a thesis and if it turns out to be wrong, you reject it. But what's happening now, I think. Um, runs the risk of having tens of millions of Americans on one side of the political divide or another deciding which science they will believe, which science they won't believe, which is sort of a subset of the whole uh, mask uh, tribalization. Uh, that's going to that's gonna have a long-term problem. Could I just mention one other problem that really disturbs me about where we're at here with the coronavirus? You bet. There was some speculation early on that the Trump White House was betting politically that they could normalize the death rate that people would accept it so that it's there are people who think that, yes, Donald Trump has done a fantastic job and, um, you know, he he has saved America. But there's also a large number of people who go, okay, he may not have done a job, but I can live with this. I can live with 180,000, 190,000 deaths that we have, in fact, become numb to a thousand Americans dying every single day. And think about that. And I was thinking back to the way we were reacting in March and April, where we had a sense of real urgency that we knew the names and the faces of the people who are suffering. And that's, that's gone away. Mm-hmm. And so right now, and maybe it's because it's no longer taking place in the great media capitals of the country. So therefore it's not happening, but uh, we aren't experiencing it in the same way. So I think that it's not unexpected that a lot of Americans would become more focused on the economy than containing the disease because they're not seeing it, they're not experiencing it in the way that they might have earlier. Here's my question. Um, if, in fact, we did cross the threshold of 190,000 today or tomorrow, that means that within the next two weeks, we're going to hit 200,000. 
Do you do you remember? Does everybody remember how the New York Times and the Washington Post handled the one hundred thousand? It was you know the full front page with all of the names, or at least the thousands of the names. It was a major milestone, and the country sat back and really you know took took stock of it, and then of course promptly forgot about it afterwards. But I do wonder whether there's a moment coming up where we're going to have to sort of forcefully step back and say, are we really okay with 200,000 deaths, probably 230 or 240,000 deaths by the election day? And I, I think that, that that's also disturbing is that is that Americans have become numb to that kind of of a, of a death toll. Yeah. Um, and I think people need to have a sense of perspective. They need to know that this level of death is not inevitable and it's not uh, unavoidable. I mean, uh, Germany, they've had 9,300 deaths uh, from this disease. Uh, Japan, which has a population almost half the size of the United States, 1,319 deaths. Okay. So it isn't inevitable that every country in the world is going to have to endure its share of, of terrible death. I mean, there, there are things that we're doing wrong. Um, let, let me just make one last point before we turn to our next subject, because I think it is important to say that um, while you know I'm highly, highly critical of this administration and the way they've handled things, um, there have been others who have um, who have squandered their moral authority too, and I think when the um, public health authorities after the George Floyd uh, murder um, said that you know it was really okay to have these mass gatherings, um, you know they first of all they went outside their lane, right? They are public health authorities; they are not to be judging like one political cause over another and which has more moral authority. That's not their role. Um, they can say, "I personally think it's worth the risk," but we turn to them for a neutral evaluation of what the public health consequences of a particular action are going to be. And they were terrible on that. They said, oh, well, you know, racism kills people too. And um, therefore it was okay to go out and, uh, and, and demonstrate in large numbers and large gatherings um, for that cause. Now, I happen to think those were important demonstrations. That's my personal opinion. But I was not a public health um, expert and I wasn't being consulted on that basis. And so I, I really think they um, they harmed their own credibility there. And it's um, it's very, very sad that because they did that, lots of people are now going to dismiss their cautions like we now have Labor Day weekend coming up. Um, after Memorial Day, we had a big spike in cases. After July 4th, we had a big spike in cases because people got together and were unguarded about the way they did it. And, you know, similarly, I, I, I fear that something like that is uh, awaiting us after after Labor Day, too. By the way, I, I can't stress strongly enough how, how if you spend time on conservative media or the Facebook world, which I don't advise, um, <laughs> but if you do, this is fed back constantly. Every time there is a picture of one of the demonstrations or the rallies where people are not wearing masks, it becomes viral. So th this has become a major talking point and justification for this culture of denial and non-mask wearing. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done. You know, oh, that my was God. the big story yeah. this week. Yeah. This is the yeah. big story. This is the most important thing happening. 
All right. Let us uh, let's turn now um, to a topic that um, I, I thought of when I was talking earlier this week with Charlie about our own experiences with with partisanship and um, and how we have changed. Um, and I thought since uh, since Damon also has has gone through a bit of a journey and uh, and Linda too. Um, Bill, you're the only one who's you're just a stick in the mud. You're still a Democrat. Uh, oh, Bill, did you have anything else that you wanted to add on the virus before we turn to this other subject? Yeah, and I'll I'll make it brief. Oh, sure. Uh, 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 Linda said something that made me think, uh, and when I thought, I ended up not entirely agreeing. Uh, she described this as a leadership failure, and of course, it is. Uh, but it's a broader failure than that. Among other things. It's a cultural failure. Uh, There is a lot, and here I'm not going to pull my punches, of brain-dead, anti-government, anti-authority thinking in this country. And so the president's ability to turn the mask, the wearing of the mask into a cultural issue was not something he conjured up out of thin air. This has a basis in some places in our culture. And if this is not inconsistent with the spirit of this podcast, it's been encouraged by one political party a lot more than the other one. And so I, you know, I can't help thinking there's a lot of shared responsibility here. We're in a moment where we need to act together and where competent authority needs to be respected. And we're not equal to this moment. And that's part of our problem. Getting now to the question of, of partisanship, um, the U.S. Um, has declining numbers of people who identify as either Republicans or Democrats. Um, the plurality identifies as independent. Um, the latest data are, according to Gallup, uh, 26% identify as Republican, 31% as Democrats, and 41%, as I said, independent. Um, and yet uh, the bitter feelings of partisanship have, I think we would all agree, never been more acute in our lifetimes and maybe longer than that. Um, so um, so Damon, I would like to hear you um, on this topic. Um, you used to be a Republican um, or at least you used to think of yourself as a conservative. You yeah, I, yeah, mo- that's more accurate. Okay, I, I thought okay. of myself as a conservative who sometimes voted Republican. <laughs> okay, all right. So um, do you have the sense that I have that um, having one, well, so you weren't a partisan. Okay, so this is, it's different for you. So for me, one of the things that has happened in the last, few years during the Trump era is that reflecting back on my previous self, um, I have come to conclude that my partisanship in and of itself was quite extreme and unhelpful. Okay. And, and, and I hope that I will never, I'm, you know, I will never be, well, I can't imagine that I would ever be that kind of a partisan again. Um, I guess you're, you were never quite that that 
uh, hepped up about either side, right? No, not really. Um, I mean, I, in, I'm not entirely proud of it because I don't think negative partisanship is a good thing for the country as a whole, but I think my own uh, kind of ideological evolution is sort of a story of negative partisanship in the sense that I've never been overly committed to either party. And when I have moved across the spectrum, it has often been as a kind of, uh, it's more been uh, being pushed away from one side than moving toward the other side. So I wrote a column back in 2014 titled, uh, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an anti-Republican. So it, it was more that, um, you know, I, unlike I think some people on the podcast, I, I, I disagreed with the Iraq war pretty strongly. I also used to work uh, among some people on the religious right and came to dissent uh, from a lot of uh, what they were trying to do in their agenda. And so those were major parts of uh, the Bush administration. So I moved away from the Republicans over those issues in the mid 2000s. Um, and uh, I have still to this day never really kind of, you know, warmly embraced the Democratic Party as such. It's more that that I sort of think ever since, you know, it's funny, and I look back at that mid-20, uh, mid-2000s period when I broke from the Republicans, and, and, you know, now I look back at George W. Bush and I'm like, oh, he seems like a nice guy. He meant well. At least he, he you know, had good people working for him. They were trying. Uh, and, you know, our standards change over time. But, you know, with the with the Sarah Palin choice in 2008 and then with kind of the electorate on the right responding to her as like, yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. And then the, the, the circus, the clown car show in 2012, where in the primaries, a series of Palin wannabes kind of surged in the polls until finally they reluctantly settled on Romney as a consensus candidate. There's been this shift in the Republican Party in the populist direction in the way that we talk about a lot on the podcast. And that has really just cemented my feeling that the Republican Party, as it currently exists, has absolutely no business in power. And so if if making that happen or contributing to it means being a kind of partisan Democrat by negation, then I'll, I'll do that. But it's not because I kind of instinctively love the Democrats. There are plenty of things about uh, the Democrats that I, I don't love, too. Linda, I remember in 2012 having a very similar response to Damon's. Um, not that I knew Damon then, I didn't, but I'm just saying I, I remember at the time, you know, texting with and, and emailing with various conservative friends and saying, you know, I have a problem with the Republican base. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they agreed, and, you know, and we laughed about it, but you know, it turned out okay. They nominated Romney and, you know, you, you, you wiped the sweat from your brow and moved on. But it was when the elites um, also jumped ship and became like the base that I said, I'm out of here. What about you? Well, first of all, I've never been particularly partisan. Uh, I registered for the, uh, to vote for the first time in 1968 as a Democrat, and I stayed a Democrat until 1985. A lot of people don't know that. I was appointed to the Reagan administration as a Democrat. I was a Gene Kirkpatrick style Democrat. And um, it was uh, 
the Democratic Party on foreign policy and particularly on defense policy. Uh, I actually worked at the Democratic National Committee and worked there during the convention that nominated McGovern. And I left uh, when McGovern was nominated because, again, being a sort of uh, conservative Democrat, I was a Scoop Jackson, uh, Hubert Humphrey style Democrat, certainly not a George McGovern. So I never quite had the attachment to the Republican Party either. Um, I voted for Ronald Reagan for the first time as a, actually the first time and the second time, uh, as a registered Democrat. I was a Reagan Democrat. So I don't, you know, I don't have this emotional attachment. I've never felt culturally that comfortable in the Republican Party. You know, in my role as a journalist of various sorts, I've gone to both Democrat and Republican conventions. I always felt more at home, liked the parties better at the Democratic conventions, uh, found the people, you know, people that were more like me at the Democratic conventions than the Republican. So I'm not having that kind of angst, but I will say that I'm not ready yet uh, to leave the Republican Party and officially register as a Democrat. I might become an independent, but I disagree too fundamentally on some issues with the Democrat Party to be willing to embrace the Democratic Party either. I just, um, I've always been somebody who votes on policy, votes on what I think are the most important issues of the day. And most of the time as an adult that has been voting for the Republican uh, candidate for president. Um, And, you know, I can see a future in which that may be true again. It certainly is not going to be true this time. Uh, And it wasn't true in 2016. But I'm hoping that some of the things I believe in, which include, you know, being uh, having lower taxes, uh, having a smaller government, a government closer to the people, uh, play an uh, an important role. Um, My views on uh, against uh, racial quotas. um, These are things that um, would make me a, a very hard fit in today's Democratic Party any more than it did in the Democratic Party of, you know, 1972. Charlie, unlike Linda, I was a passionate Republican. I I was very, very partisan, took it all very much to heart, um, told people that if they wanted to improve the country, they needed to vote Republican. Um, you know, that I would tell this to, you know, people I just met buying the newspaper. I mean, you know, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, but uh, that didn't prevent me, of course, from having friendships across the aisle. And it's funny that Linda happened to mention George McGovern. He and I became pen pals um, <laughs> late, many years after he had run for president. But he was a very, very good fellow, personally. Um, but um, um, I, I find that I find the Republican Party now utterly despicable and reprehensible in every way. I find the Democratic Party too not despicable and reprehensible, but just too far left for me to comfortably join it. And and here's the biggest thing. I think that one of our greatest challenges as a people, after we get past this virus and our and our terrible polarization, is the debt. And neither party has any plans to be serious about this looming catastrophe possible catastrophe. Yeah, good luck with the debt. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we're politically homeless, and uh, quite frankly, I'm I'm comfortable with that. I, I I think you and I talked about this the other day on, on on a phone call that the last thing I want to do is go from one tribe to another tribe. I really find yeah. it liberating not to be a part of it. You know, I've really been thinking a lot about how I, I fell into that because there was a long period of my life where I had lots of friends who were Democrats and it would, would go back and forth. And, you know, throughout the, the 1980s, including into the 1990s, um, I didn't have this visceral tribal attraction. I'm just, I'm an only child, so I'm not a good joiner. I Despite <laughs> just by nature, I'm kind of contrarian. But, um, you know, I think back on some of the attitudes I had after 2000 in that period, and especially, you know, here in Wisconsin, where things became so polarized. And and, we were talking about this because you were talking about your reaction to the 2000 recount. I was talking about how, and I'm not proud of this at all, thinking back on uh, that I had become so partisan by 2012 that I was really mad at Chris Christie for hugging Barack Obama after Superstorm Sandy, which right. when you think about that in retrospect, it's like, what the hell? I mean, you, you, they were trying to I save know. human lives. They were doing their job. This is exactly the way you would hope that things would work. And yet I could only see things through through that lens. I never, ever want to get back to this. But I have to say that right now, I I, I cannot imagine any any scenario in which I want to go back and be in the room with the Republicans, um, the, the religious right, the hypocrisy on fiscal conservatism. Um, I just don't see going back to to that at all. So I mean, I am in the we need to burn it down camp this year. Um, once that happens, we can talk about redecorating. But like you, <laughs> Mona, I, I don't want to go from w- one dumpster fire into another. I mean, I, I am um, I like I like Damon's uh, formulation. I'm I'm not pro-Democrat. I'm just uh, really strongly, strongly anti-Republican at the moment. Right. Um, Okay, so Bill, um, 55% of Americans and 63% of Republicans are worn out by political posts on social media. Um, uh, there, there are other indicia that suggest that that American that there is actually a broad middle that's more moderate than the extreme than the than the parties are. Let's put it that way. Um, so, do do you see any um, any hope in that? Well, I do. You characterized me a few minutes ago as sort of a stick in the mud. Uh, Just teasing you. I, no, no, no. You know, <laughs> you know, it was an entirely apt description. You know, I cast my first presidential vote in 1968 for Hubert Humphrey. Uh, and I've really been in the same place ever since. Uh, and frequently it has produced a sense of political homelessness. Uh, so I'm not unfamiliar with the phenomenon, you know, psychologically, even though I've been in the same party all my adult life. Uh, Having said that, uh, I absolutely agree with the hypothesis that you just put on the table. There's a mountain of survey data suggesting that on even the most contested issues, there is a broad middle ground, which if political leaders would reach out for it and preach the virtues of it, we might be able to attain, uh, and I'm not going to I'm not going to bore every podcast listener with a recitation of these statistics. But 
Uh, I went so far a decade ago as to join forces with a handful of other other people to found an organization called No Labels, uh, which you may have heard of, which is dedicated to the proposition uh, that there is there is a center that doesn't need to be invented. It needs to be recognized and pursued, which is a different matter. Uh, and uh, there is there is an honorable ground to which Democrats, Republicans, and independents can repair. Uh, but everything politically depends on the specific choices that people are offered at any given moment in time. And if the choices are polarized or polarizing, the people will reflect that uh, and the sentiments will be exacerbated over time by the echo chamber phenomenon that so many social scientists have been exploring. Uh, If we could get to a point, God only knows how, where a president of the United States would take the lead in saying that we can't go on this way any longer uh, and really take seriously the idea of sitting down with the other side and looking for common ground, which I know is what Joe Biden wants to do. It's what he's tried to do most of his life. Uh, Maybe we might be able to get out of this terrible political death spiral uh, because it's not mission impossible. You don't have to invent the center. You just have to pursue it. Well, amen to that. Um, All right. Let us turn now to matters we would like to highlight or low light. Uh, Linda. Uh, Well, I'm going to uh, suggest that people go and either read the transcript or better yet, watch the interview yesterday with Wolf Blitzer and Bill Barr. And I say not not because I thought it was uh, enlightening. Uh, but it was edifying in a certain way. I think Bill Barr showed himself to be nakedly political, and I want to point to just one element of that interview, and that was when he was asked about the president's comments about plane loads of people all dressed in black coming (laughs) to Washington to disrupt the convention. Uh, Rather than just sort of pushing it aside and saying, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that, you know, can't comment on that, he did something very different, uh, that is Bill Barr. He said that based on evidence that he has seen, uh, most of the bad things that have been happening are Antifa. And this is a direct quote. I've talked to every police chief in every city where there's been and uh, violence, and they have all identified Antifa as the ramrod for the violence. They are flying around the country We know people who are flying around the country. We know where they are going. We know we know some of the purchases they're making before uh, the riots, weapons to use in these riots. So we are following. So he simply uh, doubled, I mean, tripled down, quadrupled down on what the president said. And I think it it, it sort of got lost. And I think more attention ought to be paid because I think this is really dangerous stuff. And I, I wish more people would realize well, how bad Linda, is. This is. There are two aspects to this. One is that he's probably lying through his teeth. But the second is that if he's not lying and they've been spying on these Americans, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're uh, not allowed to, unless they had a warrant. Counter um, Intel Pro, you know, those of oh us old enough God. to remember. Counter <laughs> Intel Pro. Whoa. All right. Uh, Bill Galston. 
Yeah, well, uh, that provides me with a beautiful segue uh, because, you know, you know, after the Jeff, Jeff Sessions era, uh, Donald Trump was wringing his hands and saying, where's my Roy Cohn? Yep. And he's found him. Yep. He has. <laughs> he's the attorney general of the United States. Uh, but speaking of McCarthyism, uh, let us talk for a minute about the voice of America. Uh, uh a gentleman by the name of Michael Pack was nominated more than two years ago to take it over. His nomination was stalled and blocked for two years, and then regrettably it was unblocked. He was confirmed, and he has proceeded to carry out what can only be described as a political purge in the voice of America. Uh, he fired the entire senior leadership, many of whom were very highly regarded on both sides of the aisle. Uh, he was you know, he was instrumental in denying visa re renewals to a host of foreign journalists who had worked faithfully and and with talent for the VOA for many years, and now uh, he is raising the specter of spies in the voice of America, and in an interview with a. Uh, a commentary site, The Federalist, which some of you, I suspect, have heard of, he said, quote, it's a great place to put a foreign spy. There is, to put it charitably, zero evidence of foreign spies in the voice of America. But the director of the VOA has put that charge on the table. I would not be surprised to show him up, uh, to have him show up at a press conference next week, waving a piece of paper, which for all we know will be blank, saying, you know, I have located 241 spies in the voice of America. This is McCarthyism, pure and simple. Uh, and he may be a nice guy in private, but this guy has no business heading up a very important organization like the Voice of America. But the last time I checked, the organization was called VOA and not VOT. It's supposed to be the Voice of America, not the Voice of Trump. The director does not know the difference. Damon. Well, I'm now, I'm probably getting a reputation on the podcast for pointing to tweets, but since I live on Twitter, why not talk about what I know? <laughs> um, uh, Nate Silver, the uh, accomplished data journalist uh, who heads up 538, uh, where I, I spend a good amount of my time these days because it's pre-election time, had a very interesting tweet yesterday that I think points to uh, the, the fact that our problems in America do go a little bit beyond just Donald Trump, and I like to highlight things like that uh, on the podcast, um, this is about the Electoral College. Now, the, the combination of the Electoral College and the way it works with the shape of Donald Trump's specific electoral coalition uh, obviously is what delivered the presidency to him four years ago with him losing the popular vote by three million and yet prevailing in the Electoral College. Uh, Nate Silver has run the numbers and these are his predictions for 
the chance of a Biden electoral college win if he wins the popular vote by X points. So if Biden wins the popular vote by zero to one points, he has a 6% chance of winning the presidency. If he wins by one to two points in the popular vote, he has a 22 chance, 22% chance of being president. If he wins by two to three points, he has a 46% chance. So in other words, if Biden wins by as much as three percentage points over Trump in the popular vote, he is still unlikely to prevail. And only when you get up to him winning by five percentage points does he get up to 89%. So in effect, he is Biden is not really assured in any serious statistical sense of winning the presidency unless he can beat Trump by five points. That is a recipe for big trouble down the road. And, and for many reasons, the one I wanted to highlight is simply to say that if Biden wins substantially in the popular vote, but just barely ekes out an electoral college win, there will be absolutely no incentive for the Republican Party to change anything because they will consider it a fluke and say, wow, we could run the same thing again with just a tweak of difference and still win, even though we won so many fewer votes in the country as a whole. That's a big problem. Yeah. Um, and of course, if he wins the popular vote and does not win the White House, does not win the Electoral College, um, the sense of outrage on the part of Democrats who will have had, I think it's three experiences of- In the last, uh, in the last six in the last, elections, yeah. Yeah, on the last six elections. Uh, that is also a recipe for terrible uh, strife. So worrisome. All right. Um my final thought is about uh, the District of Columbia. For some reason, the mayor decided to appoint a committee to look into what to do with various public monuments that dot our nation's capital. Um, and in, in our new era of taking down statues and renaming things and so forth. And uh, they produced a report in which they recommended that the following uh, the following statues be either removed, relocated, or contextualized. Okay, and they are the Christopher Columbus statue and fountain that's right outside Union Station, a Ben Franklin statue, an Andrew Jackson statue, the Jefferson Memorial, and, drumroll please, the Washington Monument. Um. Folks, this is what is meant by going too far, okay? You know, it's important to bear in mind that uh, everybody wants to be very sensitive about people's feelings and about terrible sins in American history, but, uh, but this really does approach caricature um, when you take it to the point of saying you're going to contextualize the Washington Monument. Uh, so. All right. Well, we thank uh, our special guest, Charlie Sykes. Thanks one and all for being with us. We um, will be back again next week. We encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to this. We always appreciate that, and, uh, provided you like it. 
and well, <laughs> please just, you know, don't do anything at all. Um, I guess we might have people who hate listen. <laughs> um, but um, <clears throat> also you can reach me with any comments at mcharon at eppc.org. I welcome your feedback and suggestions. So thank you all. And until next week. Thank you.